really been tough because business has been booming. We just can't find enough workers. Disney joins a growing list of employers who are mandating vaccines in order to return to work. Facebook is the latest of many businesses that have pushed back in-person return to the office. It is not as easy as flipping a switch and just saying everybody back. Today I'm calling on more companies in the private sector to step up with vaccine requirements or face strict requirements. It's a realization with the Delta variant surging that COVID will probably be with us for some time. It's not going to go away cleanly on some specific date. Businesses are mobilizing for return to the workplace with little agreement on what that actually means. Hello, I'm Claire Blake with World 50. Over the past month, World 50 and G100 held a series of conversations called Work Reworked, focusing on returning to the workplace and the risks and opportunities for global organizations. From mental health and well-being to vaccination policies, members and guests came together to share successes and failures. In this podcast, we explore the most important ideas that will impact you and your organization. The only thing I think is probably a mistake is hauling in professional graduate employees that can work from home to haul them into five days a week. There are some people doing that, but I, I mean, I think they're going to be written up as case studies of bad business making by like HBR in two years time. According to Nicholas Bloom, professor of economics at Stanford Business School, his latest research declares that one aspect of the future of work has been overwhelmingly decided, at least for now. Most employers are moving to a hybrid model. I'm running two big surveys, one of 5,000 Americans a month that are employees and one of 500 firms a month. So 90% of firms are basically heading towards hybrid. That's the one point where there seems to be agreement. So what's hybrid? Hybrid is basically, say, three days a week in the office to a home. There's, for example, the Apple plan, which is Monday, Tuesday, Thursday in the office, Wednesday, Friday at home. Why are people doing that? Basically, a hybrid kind of offers the best of both worlds. You have your three days a week in the office where you can have team meetings, events, you know, big discussions, client things, trainings, et cetera. That's good for creativity, for culture. It seems to matter to be there face to face. And then you get your two days a week that's good for quiet work. It's, it's, it's quieter at home. It's easier to work normally. And also it saves on commuting time. Conducted between August 15th and August 31st, 2021, our work reworked project surveyed our own members senior-level executives at 377 different companies in 20 countries. 65% of members in our survey believe that remote working has been good for productivity, and 65% believe it has been good for retention. However, only 26% believe that remote working has been good for culture. Allowing employees the freedom of choosing which days they will come into the office is inefficient and can cause communication problems. So one extreme is what I would call free choice. So you let each employee choose how many days and which days they go for. But very few large firms are going for free choice. Most companies, as in 94% of companies, have said they're either going to set it up team by team or they're going to run it centrally. Turns out if you let people choose which days they come in, certain groups would choose less and others would choose more. So in particular, if you look in the data, graduate women with young kids have a much higher preference for working from home. Single young men have a higher preference for coming in. Coming into the office gives you a leg up on promotion if other people are not. So the second issue is you could easily find, if you let people choose, five, 10 years from now, you know all the pr- promotions are given to single young men. 
World 50 asked members if they have or will have a set number of days per week in the workplace. 32% currently say three to four days, while 38% have no set amount. Mental health is as deeply personal as anything in an individual's life. And so what supports an individual's mental health is going to be very individual to that person. While companies move towards a hybrid schedule, attracting and retaining talent is at the forefront of business leaders' minds, and a variety of options have been introduced, such as flexible workplace policies, new health benefits, employee resource groups, and more. Lisa Demore, a clinical psychologist and author of Under Pressure, emphasized seeing this as a menu of options for employees, since one size does not fit all in terms of support. People are thinking in terms of a menu that they are offering to their employees, knowing that some people may want more wellness programming, some people may want some more support around parenting, some people may need more flexibility in their schedule. So what um, bolsters individual mental health can be very, very specific and granular. And so I love this idea that people are putting a lot out there. And then what I would say is keep asking Keep checking in to see if what you're offering is what is working. Keep putting options in front of people and getting people to tell you what works. Crafting this menu should be an iterative process. Ask employees what they've discovered to be therapeutic during the pandemic. Use what's working for some of your employees and find ways to bring it to more of your workforce. If it works for one member of your population or 10 members of your population, it might actually also work for many others who didn't happen to think of it. So for me, this is all an iterative process. The thing about mental health is top-down doesn't usually work. Top-down doesn't work because this is about the most intimate and closely held aspects of people's lives. Curious, open, inventive, creative works really well. Another thing that leaders can do is work against the shame that is so often kind of lurking around conversations around mental health. If you are comfortable talking about what has worked for you and the variety of things that have worked for you as you are encouraging to people to think about the variety of things that might work for them, I think that's an enormous gift. I also think it's a very tactical and strategic move in terms of promoting uptake of what you're offering. 36% of members say that the pandemic has slightly weakened the relationship between management and employees, while 28% believe it has slightly strengthened it. William Spriggs, chief economist at the AFL-CIO, sees what is happening now as a natural reckoning after years of increasing inequality. Our economy has transformed. There are sectors that are growing desperately looking for workers and who have become less discriminatory than who they hire. And so a lot of these workers have been able to get out of that pocket. They've gotten out of that trap of only trading among low-wage jobs and information on low-wage jobs. And so once that network gets broken, from the employer's perspective, yeah, these workers seem picky because they don't want to lose money when they come to work. From my perspective, that, that was a worker who didn't have any choices. As the role of senior leaders has evolved, especially in regards to DEI, Jenny Clark, former director of executive recruiting at Google, challenged members to drive change by looking inward. I don't care how much money you have, how little money you have, everybody was vulnerable. I think that we were forced to kind of go inside ourselves. There's the metaphor. We had to stay inside, stay, rest in place, stay in place, right? And I think until we, and especially as leaders, really do an inside look at 
who am I and how do I operate and what are my values and my beliefs and my biases? And until we do that, I'm not convinced that there's going to be change because all this DEI stuff, if you will, is a function of leadership. There's a talk that I give that says you don't have a DEI problem, you have a leadership problem. Clark advised members to start with their own leadership teams. She encouraged members to provide them with honest and constructive feedback to give them room to grow and develop and to hold those who fail to do so accountable. Leaders need to really start focusing on how good is this person? Start with your own leadership team when you're doing a talent review. How good are they and in what areas do they need to grow? Because everybody's going to have different skill gaps. And the challenge is that we're doing this during this time of the greatest uncertainty of our generation. There are different competencies that are going to be required for leaders to be effective in dealing with some of these issues. So we need people who can flex. We need people who can be broad thinkers. We need folks who are self-aware, who can get out of their own way. We need people who are empathetic, who communicate effectively, who are not conflict averse and can tell their teams, you're not cutting it right? I need you to do X, Y, Z and give feedback to people. That is one of the the most egregious breaches of leadership that I see is that people aren't giving their teams feedback. They're not being critical. And they kind of go, well, you know, they're, but they're, they've been here a long time and they're good and it's okay. And frankly, it's time to call the herd. The Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated. Vaccinating employees has become one of the greatest priorities and challenges for companies. In the U.S., Biden announced widespread vaccine mandates. Juan Enriquez, managing director of Excel Venture Management, offered members his perspective. None of your kids can show up into kindergarten without a whole series of vaccinations. Right. So you've already mandated vaccines for kids in kindergarten for a whole series of conditions. There are many instances where the government and states do mandate vaccines. You can't travel to a series of countries without that little yellow vaccine passport. So governments do have the ability to mandate vaccines. The way this is being rolled out, I think it's going to be done in a ratchet fashion. It's a complicated one for employers is when it becomes an OSHA violation if you don't have a vaccinated workforce and you're exposing your workers to the unvaccinated in your workplace, right? And that's the third level of ratchet, and that's the one that isn't out there yet, but they're signaling that those fines are coming. According to our survey, only 20% of member companies are currently mandating vaccines, while 41% are still undecided about what to do. Janet Dillon, commissioner of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, shared with members that in the United States, employers are entitled to mandate vaccines. From the EEOC's perspective, employers are entitled to mandate vaccines, including new employees, subject to two exceptions. One, um, an exception under the ADA, if you have an employee or an applicant who for medical reasons is unable to take the vaccine. And then the second is if an employee has a sincerely held uh, religious objection The EEOC has said that simply asking an employee their vaccination status is not a medical inquiry or examination that would be prohibited under the ADA. However, they need to be careful about going further or asking why not, according to Jessica Brown, partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. 
they definitely need to be careful about not asking why not, for example, because that may elicit medical information, which could be prohibited under the ADA, uh, or employers would have to show that the inquiries were job-related and consistent with business necessity, which might be tricky. Lisa Demore told employers to encourage those who are vaccine-hesitant to speak with medical professionals to assess the risk of the vaccine compared to the risk of COVID-19. We encourage you to talk with medical professionals about the risk for you and for you to make that assessment about whether the risk is greater than the risk of COVID for you, that it's a balancing of risks. Some people feel the vaccines to be very risky. That makes them anxious. COVID also makes us anxious. And so I think framing it in that way that you have two choices here, neither one of them are comfortable for you. So you'll need to find the one that you can live with. No matter what decision employers make, Dylan advised members to keep records of what they're doing. Keep records of what you're doing. Keep notes of what you're doing. Because if you're questioned, you know, three years down the road from some regulator, um, you'll, you'll have that record to fall back on and to show why the decisions that you were making, why you were making them, and that you were making them in good faith based on um, the information, the best information that was available at the time. If the pandemic taught us anything, it was the future would arrive faster than what we anticipated. As the threat of the COVID-19 Delta variant looms over businesses, members have been curious about how they might avoid taking prescriptive approaches towards managing risk. The key according to Rafael Ramirez, director of the Oxford Scenarios Program at the University of Oxford, is keeping strategy at the forefront. The next meeting you're in uh, with your C-suite colleagues, find out what percentage of the meeting is about the future and what percentage is about fixing yesterday's and current problems. And if it's uh, less than 10 or 15 percent about the future, you're doing something wrong. About 40 or 50 percent of the call uh, of the meeting should be about preparing for that future. And that is the CSO's role, to change the quality of the conversation. It's important to remember that the other side of risk is opportunity, according to Nick Silich, Senior Vice President and Chief Risk Officer of Prudential Financial. The biggest risk that we're going to have as a society and that directly impacts Prudential is the ability for our different ecosystems to adapt to remarkable transitions that are going to be required over the next year, two years, three years, and decade. It's good, but the pace of change has accelerated. Risk cannot be addressed in a silo. And Ramirez argued that when executives create a strategy without outside input, they run the risk of missing opportunities. A lot of what of the scenario planning we do with risk managers is not so much about the bottom line, it's about missed top line growth opportunities. And a lot of them these days are not things that you can do by yourself, but things that you have to collaborate with others to do, others that are not in your own sector. So a lot of the quote-unquote risks of missed opportunities is thinking of strategy as something you do on your own rather than something that you collaborate with others to be able to make the pie bigger, not only for your own shareholders, but uh, your customers, your suppliers, your society, and so on. How do you make that growth more sustainable? And that's going to become a much, much bigger issue of collaborative strategy rather than only competitive strategy 
or you might need to do collaborative strategy in order to remain competitive. Strategy-informed risk management and nationwide pre-pandemic, positioning it for growth, according to CEO Kurt Walker. If the pandemic taught us anything, it was the future would arrive faster than what we anticipated. We started to have our emergency planning around the pandemic in December of 2019, which would make sense. We're a risk management company. So as we started to have those, what we did is we went to the strategy group and we said, let's do this. Let's go back and look at major things that took place in America as far back as what it makes sense. We actually went back to the Great Depression, uh, world wars, the influenza pandemic, that was similar, Great Recession, 9-11, and we found three different things took place, right? Every single time those major events took place, people became more value conscious. The other thing is they were forced to try, Americans were forced to try new things that they probably wouldn't have tried before, and those new things became habits. And the third is really consumers wanted to do business with someone who they believed in. And think about the ESG initiatives and some of the things that are out there. So we said, hey, as we move forward here, what does the future look like if you focus on those three things? These findings led Nationwide to provide customers with more DIY digital usage models, resulting in $5.2 billion of forecasted growth for this year, thanks in part to innovation that came out of pandemic planning. Since the world may be dealing with the pandemic for quite some time, members suggested rethinking how their companies communicate with employees to instill confidence amid great uncertainty. Just in terms of the the amount of my time that I'm spending on internal communications is probably two to three X what it was 2019. We thought we had simplified everything, but we need to simplify our messaging and we need to be much, much more disciplined about communicating them over and over and over again. Larry Solomon, Chief Communications Officer at AT AT&T, on how internal communications have evolved. We're now doing policy discussions where, where the comms person and the HR person you know, are walking in and like, we don't have a playbook for this. What are we going to do for our frontline employees who can't go home and work remotely, who are having to come in and fight through everything? You're making decisions with your key partners, policy decisions, kind of not on the fly, but daily. So those are the, those are the two things. It's not just communications, it's, it's policy now as well. Even as policies are adjusted in response to evolving COVID-19 risks, clear and thoughtful messaging is critical for organizations to adopt a longer-term perspective. Executive Advisor Wanda Austin offered her thoughts. We need to get in the mindset where this is the new normal. We are going to have to live with it. I think for corporations, two positions I'd put at the top of the, the new mission statement, which is we're going to keep you safe while you're here, and we're going to try to run our business so that you have a job and we can get economically stable. And I think people need to hear that because the maybe we're coming back, maybe we're not, you know, um, here's what we want you to do. No, stop doing that. It's very confusing. It's hard to get people to work together on a focused mission when the messaging coming from the leadership is continually changing because they stand back and say, well, this too will pass. There'll be some new rules next month, so I'm just not going to engage. It is a really tough challenge, 
but I think it's where leadership really has to stand up and figure it out and figure out what works for them, but have the agility to recognize that it may not be one solution that fits all of your locations. And so if leaders at this level are finding it hard, you can just imagine how employees are feeling and how powerless they feel about their own future to be able to know what to expect going forward. As the situation continues to evolve, the professional world continues to iterate on return to work strategies. Along that journey, lean on this community and share your thoughts by joining the conversation live or in the World 50 app.